0: The uh, next speaker is Mark Musser who graduated from Evergreen State College in 1989, one of the most environmental, the the first environmental university uh, in Olympia, Washington with a Bachelor's of Liberal Arts and then he went to Western Seminary in Portland. used to be called Western Conservative, Baptist, but uh, Portland, Oregon in 1994, got a Master of Divinity. His wife, uh, Karen, together with their children, Rachel, Alex, Paul, were a missionary family in the former Soviet Union for seven years, where they helped plant two churches, working with Village Ministries International and James F. Meyer uh, seminaries, ministries, rather. And so while on the mission field, Mark taught in numerous ch- seminaries, Bible colleges, Bible institutes, and other churches. and. In 2004, Mark and his family returned from the overseas mission field and planted a new church on the west side of Olympia, Washington, called Grace Redeemer Bible Church, uh, where he pastors currently. And so he's also spends half of his time over where?
1: Well, we now have a new pastor. Yeah, okay, but
0: yeah. where do you spend over in Europe where? In Arme- Armenia. Yer- Ar- Ar- Armenia. Armenia, yeah. okay. So we have with the ministry over there, so this is, I think your third time presenting here at Preacher. Yeah, third time. So he, you tell them what you're going to be talking about: uh, the final solution as Nazi eschatology. Yeah. So,
1: do I use this or I, Okay. Can everybody hear me? Okay. No problem. Yes. Little, I'm too loud. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So we're gonna talk about the final solution as Nazi eschatology. Uh, when I was in Yad Vashem, I went to their Holocaust seminar a few years ago. Tommy Ice was there, Robbie Dean, a few other men also went there. We have a representative from Yad Vashem here too, Christian, um, the Christian branch of that, that ministers there. And we, um, one of the professors that was teaching or one of the men that taught at Yad Vashem, he said that what distinguishes the Holocaust from other genocides is the final solution. Other genocides don't have a final solution to them. But with Israel, with the Holocaust, we do have a final solution. And there's an eschatology to it. And so we're going to talk about what was that eschatology that helped them come up with the idea of what we call the final solution. There are many uh, discussions about the Jewish question that you'll see in all kinds of literature and history books, 1800s, 1700s even. course, the 1900s especially, they talk about the Jewish question. Eventually, the Nazis came up with what they called the final solution, and of course, it had an eschatology to it. And that eschatology was built throughout the 1800s, especially in Germany, that helped them define the kinds of things that they were looking for. They wanted a German progressivism. They wanted a German state. They wanted a German operation that really defined themselves against the Jewish people. And they looked at the Jewish people as something backwards, something that was Fossilized, as Randy was talking about, too. That actually comes back from Hegel, as I understand it. We'll talk a little bit about that, where they viewed the Jewish people as something backward that was pulling them down. In order to get away from that, they had to step aside and move beyond the Jewish question. So we're going to talk about the final solution as Nazi eschatology, the Holocaust, redemptive anti-Semitism as an eschatology of death, because many of the things they were emphasizing were wrapped around death and destruction, a lot of their doctrines. Their social Darwinism, their racism, their even ecological views—you know—they they were also uh, very green to a certain extent. It was not the main event of their ideology, but it did play a role uh, in their thinking. And they were anti-people. There's too many people on the planet. There's too many people in Germany. Part of the reason why they were heading east, with regard to getting li- Lebensraum or living space, was to eliminate uh, other groups of people. So what we have is an eschatology of death. You know, the death culture. Uh, is taking over in Germany. And by the way, the SS, they were the, probably the, well, not the, maybe the most powerful one of them, branches of National Socialism. They had the order of the death's head, you know, on their caps and on their uniforms. And, of course, like skulls and bones, we talk about that in the, you know, Yale and Harvard, but these guys were the real thing. And so we'll take a, we'll take a look at some of these different ideas. One of the things that we don't really appreciate, we get criticized, dispensationalists especially, for emphasizing the apocalyptic view of history. But if you look very carefully at progressivism itself, or even any kind of liberal ideas with regard to history, where we start somewhere in the past and we progress toward a future goal, that really is rooted in in Bible history. It's rooted in the Bible. Uh, The Greeks did not have that concept of history. They had a circular view of history, and we weren't going anywhere historically speaking. Now Christianity, of course, the Bible, Judeo-Christian values, the the biblical emphasis of prophecy and history, this is very different. And our ideas of progress really are rooted in to what we would call today even progressivism. So if you have progressivism, we have a lot of this today, they believe in a future goal, they're going to accomplish something in the future, uh, whether it's political, especially political, but even science itself is really wrapped up in what we call progressivism. There's an eschatology wrapped up in progressivism. And so we'll try to unpack a little bit about, about that, and we will see how this eschatology played a role in the final solution itself. So how does, progressive, prog- how does progressivism, or secular millennia- millennialism, we put it that way? And we believe in a future millennial kingdom, which is coming. There's gonna be a kingdom on the earth. Well, they teach political utopia. We're going to get through through politics. We're going to get through through taxes. We're going to get through through whatever, the, you know, they want to do. Mankind is becoming better and better. They have different versions of how we get there. But these are, these are really secularized versions of Christianity and the, or even the Bible. And the great problem is, is that let's say people make it to their future millennium development goals. That's, for example, the United Nations has that. They've got all kinds of things eliminate poverty. We'll have a green environment in the future where things are good. Uh, all kinds of things, goals that they have in mind. Well, let's say we get there, say, 50 years from now. But the great problem is they have no resurrection of the dead. So most people who've ever lived will never get to share in it. And the reason why the Bible has, or the reason why the Bible emphasizes a progressive view of history, at least from a spiritual point of view, from a biblical point of view, from history and prophecy, is because of the resurrection. Today, of course, we have people that are trying to transcend history they're trying to um, uh, make peoples of the past people today pay for sins of the past so you you have to bring about this justice they call it social justice whatever you want to do it so we're going to pay for sins of the past what do you do about the past see how do you solve this problem again all these things require that there has to be a resurrection to solve that problem you try to do it secular through secular education or secular means and it can't be done So these are all distortions of God's original plan. The devil has nothing unique. He just copycats what God does, and we see this even in progressivism itself, what we will call, I would call it really, it's an eschatology of death. A lot of our death culture is wrapped around progressivism, which is really strange, But I thought we're leading to progress. That's what they say, anyway. But if you look deeply at what's going on, they're bringing us backwards into barbarianism, and we'll take a look at some of the reasons how this happened, especially in Germany. So if you look at the Bible itself, we've got all kinds of different books, emphasizes history and prophecy. And that's really the foundation for our faith. Our faith is either based on historical facts of the past or based on future things which have not yet occurred that God promises and he will certainly bring about fulfillment as Randy Price was talking about the last hour. And our faith is wrapped around those future events that God has prescribed and predetermined and will bring about at the proper time or something in the past. So our faith is based on such things. A history-prophecy relationship very strong uh, throughout the Bible, which really led to this progressive view of history. We have an Old Testament. We have a New Testament. That which is latest is best. These are all biblical ideas. We have forgotten this, but it's true. And we we get stampeded by the progressives, not realizing that progressives actually use a biblical view of history to advance their own political agenda, and we will see what happened in Germany uh, during the 1800s. Think about this, Galatians chapter three and four, but really the entire New Testament, uh, we have uh, really, Paul emphasizes history and prophecy to solve the problem of legalism in that book. And basically, God's salvation by grace program has never changed. It's always been by grace, apart from works. But still, there's a progressive plan that God has put into that operation where we transfer from law to grace. And the whole book of Galatians emphasizes that as a matter of history and prophecy especially toward uh, the chapter end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. Remember chapter 324, the law was a tutor given to lead us to Christ. See, we're sinners underneath that law. The law gives a knowledge of sin, so we therefore need an answer to that problem, and God provides it through the coming of Christ, the Messiah, which brings about a new order, a spiritual order, of course, for the church, which just delays the future kingdom program because we recognize that Israel rejected their king at the time. So God just delayed his future kingdom program for the Jewish people, but it still, promised; it still will come into effect, so God inserted a special dispensation, we call it the church age, in between those times. But still, progress, spiritual progress, what we have in the church was better than what they had in the Old Testament, see. So that progressive view of history is really at the heart of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. We can look at epics in history as well. Think about this. Uh, well, we characterize even today different epics of the past, right? We, uh, regardless of the Bible, for example, we call it the Enlightenment. We may call it uh, the Dark Ages. We may call it some other epic of some sort. Uh, you know, the time of the Middle Ages. Okay, these are all really biblical, a biblical view of history because what they're doing, they're giving meaning to history. Before Christianity, before the Bible, before the Judeo-Christian worldview, we see in the you know, Roman Empire after the fall of that Roman Empire. Before that time, we don't see meaning in history. They didn't look for meaning in history. They wanted to get outside of history to solve their problems, to escape from it. That's why they became philosophers. It's one of the reasons why philosophers and Bible people don't get along, is because the philosophers are, they, they like to abstract things.
0: Amen.
1: See, it's a problem. And so the Bible emphasizes history. It's also progressive at the same time. And uh, in the terms of spiritually, maybe not politically, but what happens, people want their political problems solved now, right? So they want to use progressivism as a method for them to solve their problems. So we talk about the rich and the poor, which, by the way, uh, Titus Livy talked about that back in the Roman Empire. He wrote uh, basically history of the Roman Empire for five, 600 years. Uh, it was the plebeians versus the publicans, and the problem was over the rich versus the poor. Have we solved that problem after all these centuries? The answer is no. It's still with us, as Jesus said it would be. So progressivism is not related to material wealth, necessarily, it's not related to politics per se. It's related to God's plan relative to the church. God places you in Christ, regardless of your background, your ethnicity, your language. And the body of Christ is resurrected, He's now glorified in heaven, and now you have a better position in heaven than you could ever imagine from anywhere in the Old Testament. So that's the kind of progress we're talking about in the Bible, but people came along later, they secularized that operation. They brought it down to the earth. And in that process, they distorted it. And now this stuff is everywhere. And they look at history uh, even very similar as we do. They, they view the Enlightenment as the best time, for example, a good time of progress. But they don't realize when you start calling epics, that's biblical. That's a biblical understanding of history. You're, you're giving meaning to history. For example, here's a quotation from Mr. Collingwood. He wrote a, a book called The Idea of History. A very good book. I would recommend it. He's not a believer, but still uh, very interesting. He said, any history, this is a, not written by Mark Buster or some, you know, this is written by a person that's a, a real scholar. I, I'm just a farmer from Olympia, Washington. So this is what he said. Any history written on Christian principles will be, the necessity, universal, providential, apocalyptic, periodized. You know, that, you, know you, you make it epic, the Middle Ages, the Enlightenment, the time, you know, the Revolutionary Age, whatever you want to call it. Having divided the past, notice that word division. Isn't that what we do with dispensations? We divide the past, right? So these are all secular uh, counterfeits to God's plan through uh, through, the, through the biblical dispensations. Having died, divided the past, it will then naturally then subdivide it again, and thus distinguish other events not so important as the birth of Christ, but important in their own way, which makes everything after them different in quality from what went before. By the way, the coming of Christ divided history in two. And they still even today cannot get away from it because they call it common era versus BCE, before the common era, it's still centered around Christ. You can say whatever you want to, but that's the fact. Christ changed history to some extent, at least our view of it. And so these things are still with us even today in spite of progressivism. Thus history is divided into epics or periods, each with peculiar characteristics of its own, and each barked off from the one before by any event which in the technical language of this kind of historiography is called epic making. The apocalyptic idea became a commonplace, although historians have placed their apocalyptic movement at all sorts of times, the Renaissance, another age, the invention of printing, the scientific movement of the 17th century, the enlightenment of the 18th century, the French Revolution, the liberal movement of the 19th century, or even as Marxist historians in the future. All these elements, so familiar in modern historical thought, are totally absent from Greco-Roman historiography and were consciously and laboriously worked out by the early Christians. See, this is a Christian view of history. When you start establishing the meaning to history, that's, that's, that shows Judeo-Christian values at work. Immanuel Kant, a very important person in Germany's history, did, did the same thing. He's really the foundation of what we would call liberalism. We could call it white liberalism. He's at the heart of that whole discussion, and he defined it. And of course, his favorite time was the period of the Enlightenment. He had a progressive view of history. Uh, here's a quotation from another scholar. In its most rationalistic form, the most consistent spiritualization of the New Testament letter is Kant's religion with the limits of reason alone. So, what he does, he secularizes Christianity, and to him, that leads to progress. We go from a, 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 you know a religion and, and a religion of revelation to reason, and secularity is what brings about that progress. And so, the Enlightenment is leading us into a positive direction. Uh, He actually believed in something called a secular kingdom of ends. Kingdom of God, but it's secularized. So he was emphasizing that. Notice uh, we have the beginning, non-moral religions and non-political, non-moral political systems. Of course, things are very primitive. And then we go on to the birth of pure religion with Christianity, supposedly in his mind. Of course, he forgets the Jews. Uh, Kant was very anti-Semitic, by the way, extremely. We will see this. And then, notice the federation of states. Uh, we, today, we call it the United Nations. However, you know, he would not like what's going on in our world today, Mr. Kant. Notice his definition of the kingdom of ends. A systematic union of different rational beings. There's that emphasis on reason, of course, according to him. Under common laws, he was very interested in what we would call uh, morality, strong. The, the, the deistic spirit of the age is very strong. He lived in the 1700s. Deism was very strong. So emphasizing morality, but morality based on secular principles, not based on revealed religiosity, not based on history, not based on prophecy. All that stuff was cut out, and then he reduced it down to the level of rationalism or reason alone. And then we'd be moral for those reasons. He tells us a kingdom of ends where no one is used as merely a means to an end. Of course, we, you know, that, that makes sense, but notice again the rationalization going on here. You know, we love our neighbor, love ourselves, love God, love people. Notice again the secular emphasis of this. Where no one is used as merely a means to an end, but where a community of persons are treated as ends in themselves to fulfill the categorical imperative, and by that he means the morality that's necessary. So people do it out of their own free will. They become moral people out of their own free will, and his rationalism was going to help bring about the kingdom of ends if we follow through with the Enlightenment project. It has an eschatology to it, but it's secularized. And we have a lot of this in Germany, the 1700s, 1800s. It's not just Immanuel Kant. The the whole system uh, really is founded upon this progressive view of history. And it's also anti-Semitic all at the same time. And it gets worse as the 1800s go on. It becomes more anti-Semitic. So the final solution later on is an eschatology of death. It becomes almost, they just slip right into this. They built it up for 100 years. These things take time. Remember the Old Testament, the prophets would say these things are going to take place, and of course it would take a while for them to seep in and dig in and and lead to destruction. But they finally did, and we see this even in Germany in the 1800s. Immanuel Kant propounded a secularized progressivism based on autonomous reason, so you know, reason is above everything. The principled application of his philosophy, they call it transcendentalism, I don't want to get into that whole discussion, will lead to a moral and peaceful kingdom of ends on this earth in which all will inwardly learn to obey God's moral law by His grace." That's interesting. He's teaching a form of salvation by works. He mixes it up with grace. And then notice without any outside political religious coercion or enslaving interference, that was at the very heart of German theological liberalism for well over 100 years. So they wanted this to naturally bring about, not through coercion of the church, not through coercion of Bible history, not through coercion of Bible prophecy, it's something that will occur naturally within the person himself through secondary reason. That was his kingdom of ends. Hegel, another one. He was after Kant. Of course, he taught the, you know, the, the principle of synthesis. You, know, you get two contradictions, and they come together, and they produce a you have the thesis. You have, the, you have the antithesis. They come together and produce a synthesis, and in that process, we have progress. That's what he taught. So again, progressivism is there with his idea of history as well. So Hegel taught the German eschaton, you know, the end times, had already arrived with his all-encompassing holistic philosophy. So the idea of synthesis and holism, we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. They want to bring things together. The world is all, you know, things are very divided. How do you bring that about? Well, you're going to do it through synthesis, through holism. That's the second answer to peace that Messiah gives, holism. Or it's a secular version of being holy. Very interesting. So Hegel taught the German eschaton had already arrived, and he wanted to emphasize holistic philosophy, world spirit. You know, he talked about the spirit, but it was very secularized again. He had a dialectics, that's that thesis, antithesis, synthesis process. History progresses as human beings and different ideas collide with each other and they produce the spirit's progress in the world. That was his idea. And by the way, he also said that everybody except for the Jews were going the right direction. They were going backwards. They had a fossilized history that needs to be discarded. German Romanticism, another movement, emphasized holism, oneness, subjectivity, feelings. That was to be the progressive goal. Uh, I know that they want to go back to Garden of Eden to some extent, but if you look carefully what the Romantics were teaching, uh, they were also very progressive in their mindset. They thought that the things they were emphasizing, feelings, uh, that's progressive. It's today, too, in our culture, that we're gonna bring about a progressive world through how I feel about it all, right? It's everywhere. This stuff was very popular theologically and philosophically in Germany in the 1800s, the same stuff, no different. And if feelings is your guide, what's gonna happen? You know, the Bible teaches that your heart is foolish, and who can know that it's is desperately wicked? And if you think through your heart, you're going to be foolish. So what we need to do is, you know, put this Bible over the heart to protect, protect, protect the heart. Because there's a lot of foolishness in it. And they weren't doing that. They just exposed the feelings, and there's no answers to it except what they felt about it all. Karl Marx, he taught a communist eschaton in which the Industrial Revolution will progress through dialectical materialism. That's economics. That, you know, the economic engine will actually produce a class of society at the end of the day. That's progressivism. That's the kingdom of man on the earth. Destroy all class divisions. That was his plan. Very secular. Again, these are all progressive views of history that are rooted in the Bible, but they never tell you that. And they replace the Bible in the process. Then we have social Darwinism, right? Based on biology and race, emphasized progressivism through science and eugenics. So the Nazis were all into that, especially. But it was also very popular in the 1800s, even, you know, especially in Germany, uh, with uh, Mr. Haeckel. He really invented what we call the, the father of German social Darwinism, Ernst Haeckel. Also, by the way, he's the father of ecology. Same guy. So these things come together, social Darwinism, ecology together, and of course, uh, what are they worried about? They want to clean up the blood. They want to clean up nature. The Nazis had their version It's called blood and soil. We'll take a look at that and how that relates to it all. Then we have existentialism, another philosophical movement where will is emphasized. It's not your mind, it's your will that's most important. Your will makes up who you are as a human being. The romantics emphasize not your mind, but your feelings. With existentialism, it's the will, and that's Nietzsche. That's his doctrine. But he had a progressivism eschatology too. What did he? The future superman. That's what he looked forward to. He recognized that philosophers, in Germany especially, have shown the Bible is not true. So what what we have now is just total chaos, morally speaking. So what we have to do now is get rid of this stuff and become supermen of the earth. By the way, the Nazis thought that they were going to be they were those supermen. They loved Nietzsche, Hitler especially. All kinds of people they love Nietzsche, and they don't want to talk about that, but or they want to deny that that's the case. But you know. Uh, Hitler opened up the Nietzsche archives. Uh, Martin Heidegger, who was a Nazi, he was all into Nietzsche, and he was the interpreter for National Socialists, uh, who Nietzsche was and his doctrines. And if you look at it, uh, the Superman concept, you see that's where the Nazis mixed up the Nietzsche's supermen with their social Darwinism. So you get mixed up this ex- ex- existentialism with science, which by the way is in our, especially in environmental sciences, especially today. Existentialism and romanticism is all part of the scientific movement today. By the way, they have their own global apocalypse, a global warming apocalypse, right? So all that stuff's all there, see. It's infected the scientific community. It did especially even here. So Nietzsche's existentialism propagated an eschatology where future supermen rooted in the earth. See, they're now getting with the scientific revolution what happens is that you get down into nature because all of science is based on the regularities of nature initially people believed christians believed god made the world and he intelligently designed it so i can learn a lot from nature by studying it right but as time went on they forgot all that and now nature alone becomes the guide and then when science goes down into nature now without any guide any transcendental answers without any meaning coming from god Nature alone becomes the arbiter of everything. What's going to happen to science? It's going to go down to Sheol, and it's going to go down to uh, places of death and teach doctrines of death, like euthanasia, for example, like abortion, where these things become standard procedure as we live this doctrines of death today, given to us by science, because they've gone too far down into nature. And that's where that existential romanticism now infects the scientific community, they don't even know it. They think they're being really romantic, which means they're really close to nature, or they're being super existential because they're being so emphasis on existence that they become super scientists. But then the problem is there's no meaning. Okay, and then when there's no meaning, things become godless, and, you know, everything becomes run by politics after that, which is what we have today. He believed also a a superman of the earth again based on the transvaluation of all values. He's going to redo them. We'll convert modern nihilism. People don't believe in God anymore, so we've got to create our own meaning. Isn't that where we're at today? Yes, for the most part. These ideas are still with us. They dominate our academy, our culture. Then we have what we call German theological liberalism built on all these things. All these things are there, especially with what we call uh, German theological liberalism, which is kind of a misnomer. Actually, it's German theological romanticism. They're all romantics. They wanted to develop a natural theology apart from God, a theology based on nature alone, which they believed was more authentic rather than this coercive stuff coming from the Bible.
2: Tell you how to live.
1: You know, they wanted to be independent of those things. Interesting, Kant was extremely anti-Semitic as he viewed the Jews as an imperial, empirical obstacle Think about that. Wow. An empirical obstacle that needed to be euthanized in order to establish a rational European order, which is biblical heteronomy. That's what they call something alien. The Bible's alien to me. It has heavenly values. They're alien to me. They have no relationship to me. We have that you know, saying where we say, uh, those things which are heaven, you know, they don't do me any earthly good, yes? That's, that's the idea here. Someone's heavenly minded he's, 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 no, it does me no earthly good. That's existentialism. That's this romanticism. Even Kant had a little bit of this, too. Notice that term euthanasia. Euthanized. By the way, do you realize that the people that carried out the... They built the death camps were euthanasia specialists? So it's like the devil has his own prophets here. Far in advance. Now, Kant would have never imagined that, that was well, going to take place. But we've got people that took Kant's philosophy literally, apparently. So they... That's how they viewed the the final solution. We're going to euthanize them, humane killing. I'm being serious, That this is how they viewed it. And we'll talk about how that led to that, too, uh, when we get to some of the horrific um, examples of what happened. Uh, Second point. Theological liberalism invested much scholarship in the rabid attempt to de judaize the New Testament as they believed Jewish historical particularism, see, that's that Jewish... You know, the promised land, the Jewish people, the 12 tribes. That's, you know, very particularistic. It's very racist in their minds. And it's, but then they had their own German racism, which was worse. It's contradictory, but that's, that's how it was, like today. So everybody's mad at the melting pot today, so they have to replace it with what? Multiculturalism, which is really multi-racism. It's multi-tribalism. It's worse. You can criticize capitalism. Anybody can do that. I mean, I can, but what are you going to replace it with? Whatever you do, it'll be worse, lots worse. And we have all kinds of historical examples showing why that is worse. It's not some something made up. We can show history, but people think they can transcend history. So they, well, we just did it wrong in the past. Well, yeah, okay, that's the, so we're going to do it again, another experiment. It'll be the same thing. They want to transcend history. See, that's, that's that biblical idea that's still up here in their minds. They don't even know it. It's there. We're made we're eternal beings made in God's image. You can't escape it. That's Romans chapter one. So they wanted to get rid of the Jewish emphasis in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And if they did that, notice what's gonna happen. German Christianity, as they viewed it, would become progressive, liberal, and universal. They'd get rid of the Jewish element. See, so then this becomes part of this eschatology of death that builds up, get rid of the Jews. They believe Protestantism, social gospel, there was a lot of that in Germany in the 1800s, surpassed ecclesiastical Christianity, now enter into a new ethical, political, spiritual age, functioning as a spiritual power in Germany. That's what they thought. We have the social gospel now, we're changing the world progressively, people are not as, they're more educated today, they're not as poor as they used to be, things are getting better and better, and the church is helping to bring that about. Uh, This, we're getting back into this, but this is all taught strongly in the 1800s. It's what we call German theological liberalism. Leading liberal Protestants opposed what they considered to be Jewish segregation, backward legalism, restrictive ceremonialism, as they hindered their freedoms. The Second Reich, this is before the Third Reich, was an anti-Semitic state under the spiritual power of liberal Protestantism. Romanticism and nationalism, all these things came together, liberal Protestantism to develop an anti-Semitic Second Reich, and they were against the Jewish people. Of course, we have many conservative theologians too. They're also steeped in Lutheranism. We already saw that the last hour. Martin Luther's attitudes toward the Jews. Well, they just kept that going, that conservative German attitude toward the Jewish people. So you have that problem along with it. See, all these things were coming together. It's not just one thing. And when you snowball it up into one uh, big snowball as it rolls down the mountain, this thing gets to be pretty serious. Very explosive and very dangerous. Yet there were some German theologians, like Franz Delitzsch, by the way, who had a, he was not anti semitic he had a ministry to them, interesting. And then, of course, we have the early dispensationalists, the Darbyites, and Paul Wilkinson, we're talking about them, how uh, probably the most successful salvation of the Jewish people given during World War II is by the, the, what we would call the Darbyites. We'll take a look at that, or Paul will teach on that later, coming up. Then we have, of course, the famous JEPD theory, which is an upside-down view of the Old Testament. Uh, they basically said the Jews are going backwards. They became more legalistic as time went on. So they said that the primitive religion of Abraham out there with uh, simple altars, that re- represents a pure religion, very romanticized view of that world view at that time. And they became more legalistic as time went on. Deuteronomy was not written until like 600 B.C. or so. And they became super legalistic as time went on. So they reversed everything. So everybody is progressing except for the, the Jews that are going backwards. That's basically his theory. Uh, it's also very Hegelian, it's just more complicated. You'll notice there's no simple triad. Uh, we, got a lot, we got the JEP theory, that's, that's a four strands. But it's the same kind of idea. They're, they're trying to bring together different strands into a cohesive whole, holistic idea. Walhausen studied under Ewald, but attributes his JAPD theory, romantic to a romantic and nationalist theologian, Lebrecht Wet I don't say these things correctly; my German is very poor. Who was a German theological liberal, very anti-Semitic, back in the 1700s? So he got his ideas from him primarily. Wet characterized Judaism as a degenerate that involved that devolved instead of going backwards from the pure and simple original Hebrewism. You know, like the, the idea where you have. Abraham out there in the desert with a simple altar, that's, that's good pure religion, so that, that's that romanticism that's invaded their mindset. And so they interpret the Bible according to these romantic ideas, which, is, which of course are false. It's not what happened historically, but that's, that's what they thought. Jews thus devolved and became less spiritual and more materialistic in their history. Then we have Mr. Harnett, probably the most important theological liberal of all time. He lived uh, up until 1930, 1930, and very important, he ran the German academy for a number of years. He was a senator of it all. He said old Judaism was a relic of the past. It needs to be abandoned for modern Christianity to prosper in the 20th century as those who hold on to the Old Testament were having a paralyzing effect on the progress of religion in the church. So we've got to get rid of that stuff. Today, kids are not brought up on, you know, Jacob and his 12 kids and Joseph and that, those kind of stories, or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. What are they? They're grown up on superheroes. You know, the Flash, you know, and Superman, Batman. That's Nietzsche stuff. Right? Think about it. Is this good for us? No. No. The real stories of the Bible are much better. It's just fantasy. People are involved themselves in all kinds of fantasies today. So we get away from the history of the Bible, and you become a fantastic, a lot of fantasies start taking over your mind. You read the Bible, and it's a historical book, and people get tired to get bored reading it. Very realistic, too, by the way. It tells people as they really are. That upsets my, my paint, painter ideas about life, you know, the romantic, beautiful pictures I like to draw of people. They don't like that stuff, so they want to change it. That's the point. The very history of the Bible starring the Jews upset the ascetic idealism, de- idealism of both German philosophy and religion, particularly Harnack. Interesting, Harnack wrote the war speech for the Kaiser that kicked off World War I in the name of German Christian civilization and modernity. German theological liberalism wrote the war speech for World War I. German theological liberalism died in the trenches of World War I leaving a vacuum that Left secular social Darwinism, and now there's no social uh, religious control at all. And of course, then also this volkish nature mysticism—that means a racial volkish, volkish means like it's hard to translate, but it means like a racial eth- ethnic view of the world where the Germans tied to nature were very important. And along with this, we have a false apocalypticism mixed in with it. So it all becomes secularized after the war. And then the Nazis take over this operation in the 1930s. German liberal nationalism was eclipsed by Volkism, this, you know, this racism, scientific racism, they have both those things working together, and eugenics after World War I. Interesting quote from Kaiser Wilhelm II, Let no German ever forget this, nor rest until these parasites, the tribe of Judah, have been wiped out from the German soil, there's our word soil, and they had all kinds of environmental ideas about the soil, and they worshipped the soil, and been exterminated. This poisonous mushroom on the German oak tree. They they value the oak tree, source of power, fertility, strength, sacrifice. You know the pagans used to offer sacrifices underneath the oak trees. Quotation from the Kaiser. German salvation or eschatology was secularized, especially after World War One, especially, but even before then. Philosophically, Nazism, National Socialism, again after World War One, was based on German idealism. That's Immanuel Kant. Romanticism, all kinds of romantics. Romance is nature. Nature knows best. Hegelianism, there's you know, a little bit of that too. The German state is progressing towards something better and better all the time, except, of course, for the Jews. Existentialism, there's that willpower through Nietzsche. Politically, Nazism was a socialism based on biological racial science with ecological predilections. So ecology's played a role in National Socialism. It was kind of under the grid a little bit, but it was there, and, and by the way, it was, very, it was powerful. Like an undercurrent. Washington State, where I'm from, if you, they don't really surf there. Of course, the weather's no good, but if you did, sometimes an undercurrent will grab you. You can't see it, it pulls you out to the, way out in the ocean, you're a long ways out before you even know what happened to you. Or even in the water, streams and rivers. Uh, they have the logs, of course, they get into an undercurrent, you get, you can't pull out of it. They can be powerful. You may not see it, but it's there. That's how I characterize the green movement in Nazism. Biology and ecology are friends. They're they're right next, just across the hallway. I sat in Olympia, Washington at um, what I call a kind of a greener cleanup committee for my farm, you know. And you have, um, you got the ecology people over here, you got the health department over here, and you got the biology people. They're all in the same room. So that's the same thing with Germany, the same kind of stuff. They want to clean up the planet, clean up the people. Progressively, Nazism was based on social Darwinism and eugenics. Wow. Eschatologically, Nazism was a was falsely based on, really, Achilleism, that's that millennialism, the thousand-year Reich. So they're adopting a millennial view of history and apply it to themselves. They apply it to Germany, not to the Jews. It's like a counterfe- counterfeit against what the Jewish people look forward to, the Messianic Kingdom. Now they have their own kingdom. The Promised Land was Germany, not Israel. They had their own farmers, idea of the green farmer, basically. The green racist farmer versus uh, Israel in the Promised Land. All these things are, you know, there's an answer, back answer to everything that uh, the devil is trying to do against the Jewish people. A Little bit of Eastern mysticism as well. And really, if you look at it carefully, the biology, really the Nazis especially, and we look at the results of it all, of course, the Nazi biological existentialist eschatology of death, all those things were there to help bring about this death culture that became very powerful, in World War II especially. Morality and moral traits like honesty, hard work, etc. were not a matter of God and, and, and ethics, or what God determined was right or wrong. No, it was biologically ingrained, that's how they viewed it eugenically determined, and the German race was the most cultivated. That's how they viewed it. Even though they're going to become the most barbaric operation that maybe the 20th century has ever seen. World War II was absolutely brutal. Probably the worst war that's ever been fought in human history. You start looking into it carefully. We get a very cleansed view of what happened. It was, it was bad. <laughs> really bad. Supposedly in the most progressive era of all. The progressivism is false. It's it's not true. It's, It's a lie. They hide behind that term. Whatever advanced the human race biologically was good. Whatever led to biological degeneration was bad. So they had an evolutionary ethic too from which the master race evolves into fruition. The destruction of degenerate races, particularly the Jews, is therefore necessary for the progress of mankind that the Aryan race of Europe will lead into a sunny, victorious future. That's how they viewed it. The thousand-year right. And if the Aryan blood is cleaned up biologically, then the morality, based on romanticism, again, not based on the Bible, but nature, existentialism, scientific eugenics. This will be also cleaned up in the process, so the Aryan race will become like the supermen of Nietzsche's prophecies back in the 1800s. The euthanasia of the weak and retarded and invalids will later, you know, they did all that too later on. You know, we could, a lot of people—they make a big deal out of Americans started the—they uh, started sterilizing people with the, um, you know, eugenics movement. Uh, look, these ideas are much deeper in Germany. There's a lot of propaganda out there, with regard to this. But the Nazis were killing people; they weren't just sterilizing them—they were killing them because they were far more advanced down that road. Uh, Ernst Haeckel—you know—that in California they named mountains after him. And he's the guy, that, the founder of German social Darwinism. There's a mountain called Mount Haeckel. A mother, there's some other German eugenicists up there in the Sierra Nevada. So California becomes a place where they start practicing some of these things. Where do they get those ideas from? They got them from German social Darwinists. Since nature was cruel, here's the other thing, according to the nature demanded cruelty. Right? That's how it is. Laws of the jungle. Getting back to nature and her existential laws of social Darwinism and eugenics will lead to a racial utopia in a future romantic area in Garden of Eden. They would talk about these things that they wanted to bring about a Garden of Eden. Clean up the blood, clean up the planet. Through what, science, existentialism, romanticism, all these things, euthanasia. By the way, later they extended the euthanasia specialists again. They were in charge of killing the Jews. Or World War II, they were in charge of the Final Solution. Essentially, they built the death camps, euthanasia people. When was the last time you heard that? It's there in the historical record, but well, we don't talk about it much. Then we have pseudoscience as well, wrapped up in this, very anti-Semitic, anti, you know, Einstein for example. The Jew is remains a parasite. Here's just a quotation from a German scientist at the time, pro-German. A sponger who, like a pernicious you know, bacteria, in other words, spreads over wider and wider areas according to some favorable area tracks him. The effect produced by his presence is also like that of a vampire. Wherever he establishes himself, the people who grant him hospitality are bound to be bled to death sooner or later. This is Hitler, Mein Kampf. Notice that bacteria. They're like a bacteria. This shows the biological thinking up here in the mind. Another quotation from Hitler in 1941, even if just one state for whatever reason tolerates one Jewish family in it, then this will become the, again, bacteria, the bacterial source for a new decomposition. If there are no more Jews in Europe, then the unity of the European states will no longer be destroyed. So they want to bring about a unity of the European states. How do you do that? Get rid of the Jew. There are bacteria. The discovery of the Jewish virus is one of the greatest revolutions that have taken place in the world. The battle in which we are engaged today is of the same sort as the battle waged during the last century by Pasteur and Koch. How many diseases have their origin in the Jewish virus? We shall again regain our health only by eliminating the Jew. So this is where science had brought them to this point. And they actually believed it. There are a lot of Nazi doctors who believed this foolishness. And that's a quotation from Hitler, but the, the Nazi doctors are the same. The academy, the German academy was all up in this. They went along with it. And so here's a couple of Jewish or you know anti Jewish physics guys, very similar. Uh, Nobel priest prize winner. Very anti Semitic. And so they they you know the Jews were they were above nature and so they tried to master nature. Uh, we don't do that. We get in with nature, and we're gonna make our technology rooted in nature. It's gonna be therefore better, more powerful. That's how they understood things. Interesting, Pasco Jordan, he's a, the picture in the bottom there, on the, on the left there. He's the father of quantum mechanics. <laughs> and I don't want to get into that whole discussion, but anyway, uh, he inserted, a, he, he believed in Nietzsche, he liked Nietzsche, will to power, and also the Fuhrer principle into his physics, as he advocated certain microscopic molecules were endowed with dictatorial authority over entire organisms. So they have these ideas up here in the mind, which they use that to interpret biology, see. You know, politicize, really, and also philosophy. The idea that the science, scientist is some kind of a perfect guy who can interpret everything all by his own is just his foolishness. It's not true. He's got all kinds of ideas up here in his mind that are not true, and he uses those ideas to interpret the facts or to interpret his experience. The concept of will to power in physics for Jordan overturns the original scientific dictum that began the scientific re- revolution: knowledge is power. That was a Christian, you know, Francis Bacon started that. It's the will to power now. It's not knowledge as power, it's the will to power. That's very different. That was Nazi science, the will to power, not knowledge is power. By the way, the Germans were actually behind in most things technologically in the war. There's a lot of propaganda. The only thing they did good was the rockets, and that took them a lot of trouble to get there. They should have made more tanks. The Russians had the best tank on the battlefield initially. Radar killed the submarines. It's not true that they were hit, technologically, except for the rockets. And there's a lot of propaganda wrapped up in that stuff, too, because of the racism. See, it, it affected how they viewed themselves. It also affected the propaganda and how people viewed them, too. You should have made more tanks. Wasted a lot of money. And by the way, why would you make a super rocket for just dropping conventional bombs? What you need to have is the nuclear bombs, which uh, we surpassed him with. Nuclear bombs are more important than rockets. You can drop those on the airplane if you have to. They never made it to the nuclear, but by the way, Hitler was against the nuclear stuff. He thought it was all Jewish pseudoscience. Hitler on the source of mental illness in Finland. It's a great pity that this tendency towards religious thought can find no better outlet than the Jewish ah! pedophagory of the Old Testament religious people who in the solitude of winter continually seek ultimate light on the religious problem for the assistance of the Bible must eventually become spiritually deformed. You know, so again, he's very anti-Semitic with regard to the Old Testament. Religious mumbo-jumbo. They become religious maniacs. Then we have a Nazi blood and soil versus the eternal Jew. We already mentioned uh, uh, you know, Mark Twain, the, the immortal Jew. Well, they were against that. We want Nazi blood and soil, German soil, German land. German blood. And we're against the heavenly values of the, what they call the eternal Jew. Hitler declared in 1938 Germany must be cleansed of all the parasites, and that in the process of the struggle against the international Jewish world enemy, these aliens, in other words, the eternal values of blood and soil, in other words, are going to deify nature rather than God and, and heaven had to be elevated to the ruling laws of life. So they had to take nature and and elevate it above everything else and use that as a dominant perspective to evaluate the world. So nature now becomes eternal. Blood and soil. Meaning of Nazi blood and soil. Here's our green farmer going back to the Nazi times. What it implied the most strongly to its supporters at this time was the link between those who held and farmed the land and those whose generations of blood, sweat, and tears had made the soil part of their being and they're being integral to the soil. Notice that mystical relationship between the soil and the human being. To so the elevated nature to be spiritual, in other words, apart from God. And that led to all kinds of problems. It meant them the unwritten history of Europe, a history unconnected with trade, the benetry of the aristocracy, the infinite duplicity of the church and monarchy. It was the antithesis of the mercantile spirit against, against capitalism and still appeals to some basic instinct as a critique of uprootedness. So this is the whole point of the German farmer. There's a lot of this stuff going on in art today, too, among the greeners. I used to rub elbows with them, you know, in my evergreen days, people who thought very similar. Yeah, I had no idea at the time that, where this stuff came from. Then, of course, the, the living space in the East, all kinds of green ideas mixed up with racism, getting rid of people, population transfers, Killing people, moving people, sustainable development. Hitler was going to cover Ukraine with windmills. This kind of stuff. Unbelievable. Gardening principles from the Fuhrer. Nothing upsets jury more than a gardener who is intent on keeping his garden neat and healthy. So the idea they're going to get rid of the weeds. Jews are weeds. So again, it's a very nature-based attack on the Jewish people. Parasites. The triumph of nature and her natural racist laws, that's what they viewed, uh, you know, nature teaches racism, that's what they thought. Triumph, you know, survival of the fittest, laws of the jungle prevail. That's what nature teaches us. Versus Jewish false eternality, you know, that's in heaven, we don't pay attention to that. That's, that doesn't do me any earthly good. So they were against all those things. Notice the last quotation. The Jews this is a quotation from the Fuhrer. The Jews plays in nature the role of a catalyzing element. a people that is rid of its Jews return spontaneous to the natural order. Let's get back to nature. They, you know, the Jews upset that standard. They're in heaven and they're aliens and they're up, uprooting things from nature. We're made in God's image, right? Yeah. Uh, book burning. They burn lots of books, especially you know Judaism, Ju- Judaistic books, but other books too. Heidegger, 41, world Judaism is ungraspable everywhere. You can't get a hold of it. It's like in heaven, see. But see, this is part of his existentialism. It's no good. It does me no earthly good. It doesn't need to get involved in military action, but that was his criticism of Jews of World War I. Of course, World War II, too. While well, continuing to unfurl its influence, whereas we are left to sacrifice the best blood of our people, and he calls it world Jewry. Heidegger, this is the most important philosopher of the 20th century. He had tremendous impact. He's really the father of what we call postmodernism. it's Heidegger. He's at the heart of it. And then we have legalism. Through the law, you're going to restrict the Jews through legalism, right? Or existentialism. If the legalism doesn't work, we'll finish them off with existentialism. That's the will. They did both. They had the Nuremberg Laws, but that wasn't quite enough. Now we're going to have to go through with it by a triumph of the will to make sure that the Jews are gotten rid of them. They started out with the law, lawyers, and later became a philosophy of death, existentialism. 1933, the Nazis passed a strong animal rights law that forbid kosher slaughter. Here's the first attack on their food supply. Think about it. And they did it for green purposes, by the way. 1935, Hitler spoke of the recently passed anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws that stripped the Jews of their citizenship as an attempt to find a solution if we don't succeed, we will let the National Socialist Party find a final solution to save the German people. So if you lawyers don't get it straight, we will. Amazing. In many speeches, Hitler spoke of the glorious German destiny based on willpower, struggle, hard work, and faith in the German Volk, that's that racial people tied to the land also, that will all spring up from within the German community itself, not from God, not from the outside. Since nothing will come down from heaven to help them. That was their ideas. God's not going to help us. Thus, if the laws fail to resolve the Jewish question, the Nazis will use their willpower to resolve it anyway. The final solution is, what, again, what distinguishes, as we mentioned earlier, the Holocaust from other genocides. Notice Hitler's prophecy. They, and the Nazis called it a prophecy. Goebbels called it a prophecy. Heydrich called it a prophecy. Today, I want to be a prophet. If international Jewry within Europe and elsewhere should succeed in plunging the nations to a world war, then the consequence will not be the Bolshevization of the world and a victory of the Jews, but the extermination of the Jewish race in in Europe. The Nazis hated the uh, communists or the Bolsheviks because they emphasized the universal man, the universal Soviet communist man. That's why when I see all this talk about cultural Marxism, and it's not true. The communists were emphasizing what? Universal values, industry, economics. We don't do that anymore, we emphasize what? Race, that's fascist. We emphasize what? Gender, of course, that's a new thing. Race, class, and gender, was a class I took in in Evergreen, kind of all mixed together. So we see these things. And then, of course, they were also very apocalyptic, the 1,000-year Reich and the final solution. Notice these really apocalyptic quotes from the Fuhrer, or actually from historians who talked about Hitler, the elimination of the Jews became essential to the salvation of the German nation. But again, this is a secular salvation. It's been all been secularized through so that long process we've already discussed. And there was an apocalyptic dimension to the vision that Hitler had. Another quotation. These are uh, Jewish scholars, except for the last one, Ian Kershaw. I have used the term redemptive anti-Semitism to save the world the Jews had, had to wipe out. We had to wipe them out. And then Ian Kershaw... The embodiment in Hitler of a dynamic revolutionary thrust, unachievable without war and colossal gamble for world power and demanding national salvation through racial purification, a killistic goal, that's millennialism, killiism that became institutionalized in every facet of political organization, the Third Reich, distinguishes the Third Reich from every other known political dictatorship. They brought in the apocalypse right into the bureaucracies, politicized and got away with it. using science, biology, ecology all those things, philosophy to do it. The German history helped inform the mind to help bring these things about. And people weren't even thinking about it because they assumed it was true. An eschatology of race is what they have. Notice here, quotations of other scholars. These are not my quotations. Nazi millennialism was rooted in a peculiar mix of eugenic, vocation, and apoc- cultic, apocalyptic ideas of the time. Another quotation, David Redel's. The Aryan Jewish conflict was quite literally interpreted as an eschatological war. You know, the, the end game. World War I, another quotation, was but one phase of, the, of an involving eschatological war. The final quotation the Nazis hoped to stop the decomposing effects of chaos. And of course, that means get rid of the Jew. Renew the spiritual health of the Volk. Again, that's that racism. And usher in, notice, the Millennial Reich. Hitler's millennialism, is, you know, his thousand-year Reich was based on German pantheism, not the biblical understanding of God, transcendental. He also had a lot of natural theology wrapped up into it. Hitler was not an atheist; that's not true. When he did speak of the Lord or the Creator, he meant nature as God or pantheism. Sometimes, you know, in public speeches, he talked about the Lord almost like he was a Christian, but that was all propaganda. With his uh, own people talking one-on-one, he was very anti. Jewish, of course, but also very anti-Christian. The pantheistic god of nature was the inspiration of social Darwinian laws of nature that imbued the Aryan race with special qualities that needs to be enhanced through the practice of eugenics. By the way, uh, Haeckel, the father of German social Darwinism, was a pantheist. German natural theology had a peculiar form of pantheism that allowed for some element of transcendence to to help get things going in a progressive way, but certainly not like the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible, who stands completely transcendent or outside of history. They didn't want that. That does me no earthly good. He's too far away. Hitler's warning against the Jews on the eve of the Holocaust, on the eve of war. I gave the Jews one final warning. I told them that if they precipitated another war, and of course in his mind they did, they would not be spared, and I would exterminate the vermin throughout Europe, and this time once and for all. There's that apocalyptic view. Notice the biological aspects to it, well we have lanced the Jewish abscess and the world of the future will be eternally grateful to us. But all they wind up doing is creating the Jewish state, right? Think about it from God's perspective. So God brought up resurrection out of disaster, out of destruction. And by the way, the, the, the final solution was just absolute chaos from these guys trying to organize it. The idea that the Germans were super bureaucratic they had it all efficient—this is, this is false. It's not true. They had a, an extremely difficult time of bringing all this stuff together, and they're all fighting amongst themselves because they didn't want—they didn't want the Jews in their own territory. So, and, and, and then the more con- the more territory the Germans conquered, the more Jews there were. It's just—it's 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 just madness. And then. Everybody's trying to ship their Jews to them. You know, they had different, you know, leaders of different areas of Poland or Ukraine or Belarus. So everybody's trying to ship off, or even from Germany, off to them. I don't want them. They're all fighting amongst themselves. What to do with these Jews? Then, of course, they put them in the ghetto. That was a major operation. You know, uh, look here at this picture here. Uh, Look at all the ghettos. It was just chaos trying to organize that. Extremely difficult. Bunches of them, everywhere, and people were fighting amongst themselves, and then of course they put them in the ghettos, and then what happened, well, you know, they, they stripped them of all their money, so then the Jews couldn't get out. So then they go in these ghettos, and then they become, what, the, the, disease problems, and of course the Nazis are supposed to be eugenic people, right, they were cleaning up everything. Well, they were creating these, you know, these hell holes inside these ghettos full of diseases. They put people in concentration camps. Notice, by the way, there was concentration camps everywhere, not just you know a couple places like in our minds. They were everywhere. And what, what was happening? These diseases. So what they were doing was creating the exact opposite effect of what they wanted to do. So it's just madness. Because up here in the mind, nature is now dominating their thinking, and so everything they do is just destruction. And they had a heck of a time carrying out the final solution. But they still did it, amazingly enough. Amazing that they did it. There's a big argument among the Holocaust scholars, intentionalism versus functionalism. I, you know, I can't spend a whole lot of time on this. But intentionalism is the idea where, you know, did the Germans really intend to kill the Jews from the beginning? And the intentionalist argument, historians they emphasize, yes, you know they intended to kill the Jews all along. Then you have the functionalists, and here's how they look at it. And by the way, most of these ideas are coming out of Germany, which is, I make them, I I don't pay a whole lot, take them very seriously. But notice here, functionalists argue that uh, there's no straight line from anti-Semitism to the Holocaust. There was instead a twisted road to the Holocaust, which is, I just already explained that, of course it was. In other words, the Holocaust was very much a result of the immediate circumstances that the Nazis found themselves in. In his work, The Origins of the Final Solution, the American historian Christopher Browning, which I've read his book, following German scholar Hans Mommsen, I've read some of his stuff too, argues that the final solution only took shape when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union. It wasn't that the extermination centers simply uh, formed without the knowledge of the intents of Hitler and other leaders. It was simply the final solution changed from simply removing the Jews from Europe, that was the original plan, to now it became, we're going to kill them, and the war gave them the opportunity to do it. So there was no intention to kill the Jews from the very beginning. There's a truth in there. When the Nazis were talking about anti-Semitism and blaming the Jews, they didn't, weren't thinking about putting them into the death camps at that time. I'll grant that. It took them a while to figure that out. But the very fact that they did it finally came up with a solution against all odds, against all the obstacles which were enormous. Not The money, this was super expensive, by the way, to do, too. Transportation was a huge problem. Trains and all that, it was just nothing but trouble. What do we do with all these people? They created their own overpopulation problem, and then they're all worried, how am I going to fix the overpopulation problem? So what, at the end of the day, they finally well, we're going to euthanize it. Initially, they were just going to get rid of it. But think about this. What does the Lord say if you hate somebody, right, and the Sermon on the Mount? It's good as murder, Right? Is there any real difference from God's perspective? No, not according to Jesus. So we can sit there and argue about intentionalism versus functionalism, but at the end of the day, what does God say about it? So lots of interesting discussions, and they all get wrapped up in this big debate amongst themselves. Most Holocaust studies focus primarily on the machinery of destruction, the how of the Holocaust, not the why, which hides the motive of murder. It also protects the academics. All of the history that I just gave to you—that that led to this—they're trying to protect that because that still dominates the German culture, dominates America today too. By the way, they want to keep that stuff. This, by itself, reflects materialism and existential and postmodernism. That really, uh, when they are using German historiography to interpret the Holocaust. Wonderful, wonderful. So they don't—they don't talk about motive. They don't talk about. Motto. They don't talk about uh, the ideas, you know, the things that were going on up in their minds to helped them justify what they were doing. Just sort of a simple racism, that's it. Nothing beyond that. It was much more uh, involved than that. Lots of things were going on to bring this about. Some adamantly refused to ask the question, why, because there can be no meaning to such Nazi madness. Well, there's, that's partially true. The Nazis were nuts. But you can still explain it, how the how they became nuts. German scholars they prefer functionalism, which protects German academia from culpability. The same hermeneutical struggles that are seen in the, all biblical studies also show up in the historiography of the Holocaust. It's all the same problems. We don't think so, but it's all there. So when you pick up a theology book, you have to sort through all the, you know, the unbelief related to you know what happened. Well, the same thing with Holocaust, It's the same problem. So they come up with different interpretations why these things took place. So my final conclusion on that is that in spite of all the logistical difficulties, and there were many, I don't have time to explain them all, and all the bureaucratic infighting amongst themselves, the Nazis still carried out the Holocaust in spite of the massive functional barriers that interfered with their plans. They still did. So that means you're culpable and they had some intention that was not good. Interesting quotation. David Hirsch, he's a, a Jewish scholar, uh, I think he's passed away now recently, but he talks about the deconstruction of literature. He wrote a book. Which we do. We're, these are the same kind of people's inter, uh, history for us. Also, the Holocaust. They're deconstructing history, so we don't know these things. See. Hirsch demonstrates how postmodernism. This really goes back to Heidegger, and especially in Germany, infiltrate the Ivy League. That's our, you know, our, our Harvard and all those people through former SS scholars. Notice it. You know, the, you know, the idea that these, uh, you know, that the neo Nazis, these punks, are Nazis. I mean, this is just foolishness. They're just punks. Okay. The real Nazis were people very, very uh, educated. They were not stupid. Most of the people running around, running the Einsatz Group and they were killing the Jews in, uh, in, you know in Ukraine and they were they were doc- doctors and lawyers in charge of these operations, shooting the Jews. He says here, it's misleading to disengage contemporary anti humanism. We see this all over in our modern environmental movement, especially from Nazi dehumanization, for they share the same philosophical and cultural origins. It's the same stuff, it's just brought up to date. So we're not racist anymore, we're just anti human. It's, it's still not good, still bad. Hirsch defines postmodernism as post Auschwitz. Interesting. In brief, the post-Auschwitz age is one in which the 19th century prophecies of Marx and Nietzsche have been realized in the Soviet gulag on the one hand, and the Nazi death camps on the other. Whatever postmodernism may be, it's hard to define, the post-Auschwitz age is one of total war, mass murder, and genocide, an age of the death of God, and the eclipse of Western culture and Judeo-Christian values. Amen. That's the problem. Almost 1 million Jews died in ghettos from abuse, starvation, and disease. 1 million. That's a lot. The Eidzatz group, and these were death squads, they went all over uh, Belarus and Ukraine, especially, but also the Baltics. Uh, they murdered 1.7 million Jews behind the German army front, you know, going into Russia. 1.7. That's a lot of shooting, a lot of bullets. And it was gruesome, by the way. Here's a they found this called the Rigner telegram. Again, my German is not good, but notice here uh, they intercepted this uh, transmission, translated it. We have received to the Foreign Office following message from Rigner, Geneva stop. Received alarming report that in the Fuhrer headquarter plans I discussed and under consideration, all Jews in countries occupied or controlled by Germany, number three and a half to four million, should after deportation and concentration in the East at one blow, exterminate to resolve once for all the Jewish question in Europe. There's our Jewish question. Final solution right here on a cablegram. They knew how many Jews were there, had them numbered. By the way, they used uh, IBM census technology to find the, find the Jews. Another hidden story. Operation Reinhardt, that's the death camps. There's other death camps too, but primarily Treblinka, Sobibor, and belzitz This is not Auschwitz. Uh, they killed the uh, almost two million Jews death camps euthanasia experts specialists or whatever I want to call them they developed uh, the means to kill uh, the, the Jewish people in these camps operation Reinhardt named after Heydrich Rein, you know, Reinhardt uh, Heidrich. he was uh, you know underneath himmler uh, he was killed by the British but you know by the Czechs in 1942. Action Erntefest, again, I can't say these properly, basically Nazi Thanksgiving 1943, I have an article that came out last week in the American Thinker, uh, that brought an end to an Operation Reinhardt in which they killed 43,000 Jews at the end of this, the final Operation Reinhardt. That was the single worst um, massacre throughout the entire war, 43,000. And they called it hay, basically a Hay Harvest Festival, Harvest Festival, Thanksgiving, Get rid of the Jewish weeds. So, we have this idea that it was an industrial holocaust, but how did the Nazis look at it? See, this is that postmodernism. That's that anti, the Marxist, you know, the economic view of the world. That there's no, ideas don't matter, beliefs don't matter. So, they ignore what the Nazis say about it. It's, just, it's like a harvest festival. We're cleaning up the farm here, get rid of the weeds. By the way, Auschwitz was 40 square kilometers, most of it was used for farms. When's the last time you heard that? Again, they focus on the, uh, you know, the, the industry. Why? Because they want to blame capitalism for the Holocaust. Which, you know, they were national socialist. They hated the capitalists. During the war, Auschwitz murdered more more Jews than any other camp. You know, a million. And the numbers are astronomical. Fifty thousand Jews were murdered in the Balkans. That's that's in the south, southeast of, of Europe. And notice the destructive mindset of World War II, I mean, it's just total destruction. They're talking about progress, eugenics, and science, and what are they doing? It's just total destruction. The war against the Soviet Union will be something else completely different from any previous campaign. Communism represents a terrible threat to our future. This war is a war of extermination. If we do not accept this, we may win, but the problem will surface in 30 years resurface. We're not waging a war to spare the enemy. It's again, very brutal. Many German soldiers knew the final solution, to murder all the Jews as they reported it back home. Letters. People knew about this. Hardness of heart, right? Uh, What happened to Pharaoh's heart? He got hard? Well, he was a nature worshiper. You don't give glory to God, what happens to the heart? It becomes hard. You start hardening yourself against God, and then you become very hard in your attitudes towards people, and eventually uh, you, you have the laws of the jungle prevail. If you don't listen to God, this is what happens. The war against Russia is a fundamental part of the German people's struggle for existence. There's that existentialism and also social Darwinism. It is the old struggle of the Germans against the Slavs, the defense of European culture against the Muscovite, Asiatic deluge, I mean, there's too many people. The defense against the Jewish Bolshevism, you know, that world Jewry. This struggle must aim to smash the Russia of today into rubble, and as a consequence, it must be carried out with unprecedented harshness. This is from a general on the Russian front. Animalism. See, they're, they're going down the level of animals here. Major General Gerhard Fischer admitted, we acted like wild beasts on the Russian front. We acted like uneducated animals, a wild animal. Yet the nature ethos is now working in their practices on the battlefield. Nazi concentration camps were placed in very beautiful locations. These are quotations from some other writer I just came across. Ravensbrück was a concentration camp for women. They had those too. They had had them everywhere. Theodor Ick, uh, Mr. Oak, that's what his name means. He was in charge of this. Eichmann, the man of the oaks, basically the architect of the Holocaust. That oak imagery is interesting to me. Is it purposeful? I don't think so, but uh, the devil has his ways. And by the way, Theodor Icky actually designed the concentration camp system. Him to put him in charge of it. End of the war, primitism. At the end of the day, uh, notice here, Hitler told uh, his general in Paris to blow the place up, and he says, all i got are bows and arrows. Great tribulation gets going, guys, and the planet starts to shake, all the technology's not going to matter. It's all going to dislike Japan very quickly, just kind of go like that, and life is going to be very primitive very quickly. Run out of bullets and then what's gonna happen? Maybe some of these prophecies will be more literal than we realize at the end of the day. We'll see. The Darbyites, they are the true millennialists. They saved thousands of Jews during the war and uh, Paul Wilkinson will talk about that after lunch. So the real millennialists are the good guys, not the false ones. Anyway, that's it. So thank you very much for that presentation.
0: Okay. Questions. You're supposed to go to the microphone uh, for questions. Thank you, Mark.
1: You're welcome. With
0: pleasure. I have have everything you said down.
1: (laughs) Robbie Dean, yes. Are you ready? Okay.
0: All right. There's a claim that I've heard more and more recently, and that is that Hitler didn't crystallize his desire to exterminate the Jews
1: until he came under the influence of Haj al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, when he went to Berlin. That it's under his influence
0: that this really gets crystallized, focused, and enacted. What do you think?
1: Well, I, it, gets, it gets worse and worse over time. It's already there. Uh, Dietrich Eckhart, is his, that's really the father of Hitler, and he was his mentor. He was extremely anti-Semitic talking about getting rid of the Jews all the way back in the year, during World War I. And he was very popular, became one of the foundational members of the Nazi Party. But, uh, you know, it, it had, they were just anti-Semitic just talking about it. You know, they, right. they really think they were gonna, actually going to do it. They didn't have the possibility to do it until much later. Right, and right. I just, well, I can't answer that question. It just yeah, that, progressively gets worse, I can tell you that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah that, that's yeah. what the claim is. It's not that it originates there, but it gets to a certain point. But with him coming to Berlin at that time, that's when it just goes, they have the ability, everything else, but it's, you know, it's having him speaking into his ear, do it, do it, do it, that that pushes it. That's the claim.
2: I've read
1: that too, it may may be a catalyst of some kind to help, you know, just another catalyst to get him moving in that direction. But yeah, it's hard to pin down. This is why these books are written on the final solution that they can't really pinpoint a time when there's no order that they see ever that they've ever found, they're not gonna find one. Uh, that where Hitler said let's kill all the Jews, and until they do, they really can't answer that question. Right, I've
0: I've read that also that yeah. he was just gonna put move them off into an well, area. They had a Madagascar right. plan,
1: and that fell through. See, France yeah. was in charge of Madagascar, so when the France fell, they thought, well, let's just shove the Jews to Madagascar. Right, but,
0: but that yeah,
1: even that is a huge obstacle. You got to put them on ships. Okay, you got you know and
0: the grand mufti you know came and lived in berlin and helped mm-hmm. him and all that yeah, and yeah. he he yeah. was the one that said we need to kill it, kill them and it could have pushed him over like you say but you you had a quote in your presentation much earlier from the 1930s where right. he where he talked about exterminating the jews or something well right? that was his prophecy I mean, right yeah, yeah.
1: and the, by the way there's also i read this book and i don't know how true it is but he, he's a german not a, he's an english scholar but According to him, and he has the, the goods on it, and I read his book, it looked like he's got the goods on it. I haven't seen much discussion about it, but he wrote a book saying that when, um, you know, when uh, Rudolf Hess, by the way, he was the greenest of all the Nazis, Rudolf Hess. When he flew into England, he tried to get to the, uh, you know, the monarchy. You know, they were friends with each other. He actually, uh, when they caught him, uh, he had orders from the Fuhrer that if you guys, we want to make a deal with you British people. Let us alone in Russia so we can get rid of the Russians. Just leave us alone. If you don't do that, we're going to kill all the
0: Jews. Hmm. Uh,
1: but again, I, I can't. I'm not a scholar. That's just a book I read, very interesting book, and based on eyewitness testimony, that guy that was there when, he was there, when they got him. So. Thank you, Mark. Um, I think most of us in this room would be of the understanding that uh, postmodernism is a philosophy Uh, has pretty much been embraced as the theology of this emerging church movement. Can you uh, make a connection for us between uh, what you've just exposed as the Nazism behind or birthed by or some combination back or the postmodernism, and what's going on in this expression of the church in America that young people are finding so attractive? Well, it's really not necessarily Nazi per se, it's German, you know, German based. The German theological liberalism, uh, eventually, they incorporated things like romanticism and existentialism, which is really the foundation for postmodernism. The idea that my feelings are more important than thought. The idea that my will is more important than what I think. So when you interpret texts, if your feelings are more important than what you think, and if your will is more important than what you understand with the mind, Your views are going to be skewed, and this is what's happened to a lot of the interpretation today. It just becomes a matter of the heart you know, how I feel about it all, and this just skews everything with regard to how you interpret facts. And and, and if you become a scientist, it's worse. So so it would be your opinion that Nazism was burst out of postmodernistic philosophy and not vice versa? No, the German ideas were already there. German romanticism in the 1800s and existentialism, Helped to lay the foundation for Nazism. And then postmodernism comes after that. So they're after, I would say I would describe postmodernism as kind of like an evolutionary form of that's fascism today. Okay. It's not Nazi per se. However, Heidegger is the bridge between the old existentialism romanticism and postmodernism today. Yeah. And he was a Nazi.
2: Okay, you're not a mere farmer, you're a scholar as much as anybody else you referred. God bless you and thank you. Two questions. The first would be: I've chosen to home educate all of my children, often citing history alone was sufficient reason, lest they be indoctrinated. So, could you speak to the seriousness and the urgency of people who have children or grandchildren in the public education system, particularly higher education? I just see a metastasized cancer there of postmodernism. The urgency about education system is the vehicle, is the juggernaut, is the Trojan war. And secondarily, do you have published somewhere an annotated bibliography of the books that have the most deeply influenced you, that we could get hold of that and read? those and pass them on and, and see seriously education.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote a book. It's called Nazi Ecology. It's back there, so it, you can look at that. But some very good book. I mean, I've done a lot of reading on the, on the Third Reich, uh, and even with regard to German uh, philosophies behind it. Probably the most important book that I would get a hold of for you, you guys would be written by uh, one of Heidegger's students. His name is Karl Loeth. He was a German-Jewish scholar. He wrote a book called Meaning in History. And he shows clearly how progressivism is rooted in Judeo-Christian worldview of prophecy and history. And, uh, you know, it's an excellent book. So it's called Meaning in History, but written by Carl Noah. He shows the progressive worldview is really a distorted picture of the Bible. And it's an excellent book. Uh, that, 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 real, that, that book helped me survive the Evergreen State College. The other thing that helped me survive the onslaught of propaganda was, um, was Pastor Breckel. <laughs> He taught me the Bible in a way that no one's ever taught the Bible before that time. I, you know, I didn't know what Bible teaching was, and I was my first two years at Evergreen. I was hard. I did, you know, I, Francis Schaefer helped a little bit and some other things. But when he started teaching me the Bible, you know, the classic dispensational grace guy uh, started teaching the Bible verse by verse. That changed my life significantly and helped me to start having. I could have conversation with people. It was the Bible that helped me start having a ministry. And the last class that I took, very interesting, at the um, Evergreen State College called Liberation Theology, so I took that too. And it was a whole 16 credits you know, given over to this, uh, Liberation Theology. So uh, I talked about a lot of things I did with you uh, with regard to that progressive view of history as a biblical view of history. And then I gave them the gospel, basically. <laughs> and there, was, you know, there were 60 kids sitting in this, bunch of hippies and greeners and everything else, sit in the audience and then when, when this got done uh, every kid in class raises hand, started asking questions and, and they, they had to shut it down you know that's professors had to shut it down because there wasn't time so it, it could be done but you have to you know it, it took a it took some time about four years and some bible so, study and some other good books along with
0: it so where do you
1: it certainly did. Yes, thank you, thank you,
0: John. So, where do you where do you see our culture heading? In other words, what was Nazism? How did that prepare uh, for the you know the tribulation that's coming?
1: Well, I think the postmodernism has helped lay in the ground of lawlessness. I think the biggest thing we have today is lawlessness, which comes out of a postmodern viewpoint. And the uh, you know the man of lawlessness has come. And you know you just look around. We're, we don't even have any laws regarding uh, even biology you know you can be a woman transgender all this kind of stuff uh, these things are the lawlessness is everywhere it's not just on the border it's in everything that we're struggling with today and it's almost it's so universal today well when i go to armenia we're missionaries there now that the young people again you can tell are just that this lawlessness is just up here in the mind that we go to ukraine it's the same thing so i see this growing lawlessness which is a real problem uh, which I think is, uh, the Nazis were pretty lawless.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> they, they had lawyers, but lawyers actually, through legalism, destroy the law, and then people become lawless. Of course, that, that's the biblical view of how things happen. Remember, you know, Eve, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree. And then Eve added another restriction don't touch it. And she did both. Okay. So that's what happens under legalism. You do it anyway.
2: And I had one other P.S. just for the audience here. If anyone that hasn't seen The Hiding Place, uh-huh. that's uploaded to YouTube now, and there's a new film, Return to the Hiding Place. I'm just here in town doing a one-woman show of Cory ten Boom, so I'm saturated in that. And it's about the young people who left university to assist Cory ten Boom, and you see in that film what the Nazis did to them and how, they were, how their thinking was interacting well, with culture. Yeah. It's a great film, The Return to the Hiding yeah, yeah.
1: Place. They were all in the Hitler Youth by that time, which is based on the old, what they call the Wander Vogel, movement, which was like a bunch of German Boy Scouts, but they were not the kind of Boy Scouts that we talk about in America. They they were a lot of anti-biblical ideas. Nietzsche was their favorite book. Lots of bad stuff was being taught to those kids. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A lot of the stuff that you mentioned happened in Germany and or parts in Europe, but what you're describing is now happening globally. So the effects will not just be one nation trying to implement their a, a, spectological, a spectological view. Would you like a comment?
1: I guess I, I couldn't quite grab at all. What was the question again? Done.
2: It's not just Germany in the 1800s or 1900s that have these oh, ideas. Yes. Everyone is catching up on these, call it
1: then, lawless ideas. No, it's everywhere today. Yes, it's spread. And the effect. Yeah, it's spread. It's, it's, it's very popular today. It's very, the whole Western culture now is dominated by this kind of thinking.
0: So how how is Islam influenced by this stuff uh, or that's is a good it, question. I can't yeah. answer that. But okay.
1: certainly uh, the German you know, Islamic connection's pretty strong. Right. You know, they were they, World War One you have Germany and Turkey were in bed together. And then you had a genocide of the Armenians and they were in right. we are now. And supposedly a Christian country, of course is you know, it's skin deep, it's you know, kind of a lot of nominalism there, but still this is the first time we see that I'm aware of in European history where the Europeans chose Muslims over Christians. And, you know, a million and a half Armenians were killed. First World War I, you've got Germans involved with that too. Again, the problem is the unbelief. In all these false philosophies that they adopted. As they said no to God, all this other stuff just filled in, just like we see today in our own cultures. It's the same type of activity.
0: Yeah, it seems like the whiplash uh, against Trump. Uh, if they get in, they're, we're heading in the same direction oh, it's so here. Now. I, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is it's, amazing. It's, they won't. They won't let you talk anymore. It's
1: madness. You, know, you just watch the TV. And it's madness. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: thank you very much. Thank
1: you. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah.